Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science is an initiative of the Interpretive Methodologies and Methods Group of the American Political Science Association and the Interpretation, Method and Critique Research Network at the Australian National University. For more, visit the New Books Network website, click on Academic Partners and follow the links. Hello. In this, our 10th episode, we are discussing Empires of Vice, the Rise of Opium Prohibition Across Southeast Asia, published in 2020 by Princeton University Press. The book received the Giovanni Sartori Best Book Award of the Qualitative Methods section at the American Political Science Association and also got honorable mentions from the committees for the Charles Taylor Book Award of the Interpretive Methodologies and Methods Group at APSA and the Alan Sharlin Memorial Award of the Social Science History Association. The book's author is Diana Kim, an assistant professor at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, who is also currently a member at the Institute for Advanced Study, Princeton. I'm Nick Cheesman, a fellow at the Australian National University and host of New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science. Diana, welcome to the series and congratulations on writing such a highly regarded book. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much. And it's a pleasure to be here. Diana, you say in the introduction that the goal of your book is to situate the regulation of vice at the heart of European colonial state building. Why? For students of Southeast Asia, vice, and specifically its manifestations in terms of prostitution, drinking, gambling, as well as drug addiction, which is the broader category in which my focus on opium falls, have been well noted but underexplored in the sense of understanding how they related to the logics of state colonial governance. And I wanted to figure out a way to complicate the standard ways in which we think about the state's regard towards the kind of putatively underground, illicit aspects of colonial life. How do preconceptions about lives of others emerge, especially when they're tinged with questions of morality, racialized discourses, kind of presumptions about the vulnerability of others figure so centrally, how the state actually comes to see those things. Perhaps in the language of Jim Scott, how do these aspects of social life become legible to the state? And you mentioned standard ways of understanding the state and phenomena in which it's imbricated. Your book is pushing against or querying some standard ways of accounting for the emergence of prohibition of opium in Southeast Asia. What were those ways and why were they unsatisfactory? For the regulation of opium and thinking about its significance for colonial states, there are two standard narratives. One very much focuses on the fiscal state logics, the revenue extraction, the maximizing of state revenue under constraints, which is a story that we're familiar with a la Charles Tilley, Margaret Levy, John Brewer, Jim Scott. But in a way, Southeast Asia's experience with opium provides this instance in which to think about a moment when a state is ostensibly turning against a source of tax revenue, and a lucrative one nonetheless. One thing that I look through in my book is how, during the late 19th century, opium taxation levied upon popular consumption accounts for at least in the case of today's Singapore and Vietnam, at least 50% of locally collected tax revenue and smaller shares, up to 10% in the Dutch East Indies, the Spanish Philippines. And so there's this moment of trying to figure out 
how do we understand when a state is not maximizing revenue, when it's turning against it? So that was one thing that the experience of Southeast Asia helped me push against in terms of standard understandings of the state. The second one I worked through a lot in trying to think about how to formulate it, but it's a kind of complication about a particular way about thinking of logics of colonial state governance, through which we're more familiar with the nature of structural forms of domination, the kind of rule of difference, through which we think about the racialization of difference, extraction of labor, the dark sides of colonial governance. And opium taxation and its eventual prohibition are stories that very much fit in that type of paradigm. But there's also an additional dimension in which there's more anxiety and more confusion within the bureaucratic state. There was a sort of inner life to how governance was thought about regarding this commodity and its consumption that I really wanted to pull out It complicates the way that we think about more confident kind of domineering colonial states. This is the state in its moment of uncertainty, I guess is the best way to put it, anxious about what exactly it's doing, how it's governing. So those two typical images of the state are ones that the story of opium prohibition that I tell are trying to push against. The question that you ask is how anti-opium reforms occurred in these colonies rather than explaining why they occurred. Could you say a little bit more about why you opt for the how question rather than the why question? I presume you're not being so crude as to suggest that the why doesn't matter, but there's something about framing the question in the way that you've done that then enabled you to do a different kind of empirical work than you would have done otherwise. For me, the why question is enormously important to understanding the rise of prohibition because it was in many senses a global phenomenon. But another reason why I was deferring the why question is that this has been fairly well explained in standard histories or prevailing narratives about the global history of drugs. And indeed for Southeast Asia as well, the historian Carl Trockey's influential study of opium and empire has really highlighted answers to the why question, which is that we know a great deal about the role of religiously inspired and also secular moral crusaders, transnational activists, as well as scientific advances in medicalized knowledge that really centered attention on the drug's harms. And that, so goes the prevailing understanding, led to changes in international norms around the late 19th and early 20th century, which undergird the rise of international institutions, the rise of global drug control regimes, which indeed provide the kind of institutional foundations for how we understand anti-narcotic approaches today. So we have the why story, and it's often told from the global perspective. The how question, though, gets at something which I found really striking and interesting, especially in the context of Southeast Asia, where opium was very much entangled with the early formation of the colonial states through tax farming. And if you think about prohibiting something that a state has relied upon for so long, regardless of its kind of deeply contested moral valence, regardless of international norms pressing down upon metropolitan states and colonial states, there's this question about how exactly do you reconfigure the very fiscal bases of colonial governance that are tied to opium? And also, how do you actually reverse the official justifications, the languages that the state has that once said taxing opium is legitimate in the sense that it lets us balance utilitarian rationales alongside a need to legitimate colonial rule. That language shift, I think, is super interesting and not as easily explained as we might think. And so the how question gets at how exactly a state transforms itself. What's your answer to that question and which case studies do you use in order to arrive at it? So my answer, in a nutshell, is kind of anticlimactic, given the large and grandiose scale, I think, on which I'm framing the question. But I find it persuasive. It's what emerged for me from the archives that I was looking at, which is that the question of how empire's anti-opium turn in Southeast Asia happened really has to do with bureaucracies, especially local administrators. And I look mostly at the British and French colonial states across Burma 
the Straits settlements, especially Singapore today, as well as parts of French Indochina, and predominantly I focus on Vietnam. And my argument is that the local administrators, the British and French officials who were stationed across these locations, had administrative conceptions of threats, challenges, dangers that occurred from a reliance upon opium, and that these sorts of problem conceptions accumulated over time. They incrementally eroded the colonial state's confidence in the viability of the drug itself as having commercial and fiscal value for colonial governance. These administrative conceptions that emerge from bureaucratic work and practices generate crises of legitimacy within the state, and that effectively enabled anti-opium turns to occur. Okay, so if I understand correctly, you're saying that the prohibition emerges in large part out of the stories that the administrators in the colonies gradually crafted and told themselves about the trade and its effects, stories that over time became official problems. So rather than this being a history of decisive turning points, we have an accumulation of crafting and recrafting of official problems and putative solutions. But the stories about the problems weren't at all consistent from one place to the next, were they? Right. What I really wanted to stress in terms of understanding these problem constructions and their accumulation and escalation is their slowness. Throughout the book and the three cases that I look across, each of them span at least 20 to 30 years. And these are processes of problem understanding, definition, bureaucratic work, record keeping. And I really do stress how much I'm looking at low and mid-level officials, those who are often not named, often people who are quite petty in terms of their ideas and their influence upon grander metropolitan legal administrative reforms. But I'm arguing that these administrators produce these conceptions of official problems that have a really specific architecture. That is, at once they define something that is perceived of as actually worth solving by the state, as opposed to letting it be solved by market forces or delegating to local elites or religion, which is in the case of opium for much prior to the 1890s when the anti-opium turn begins. There are prevalent conceptions that, well, opium-related kind of problems, tax collection can be delegated to often Chinese entrepreneurs or to the religious authorities within villages who can take care of people who seem to be experiencing negative effects from opium consumption. But there's a shift towards centering the state as the primary locus for dealing with opium. And that is the moment that I'm talking about as the rise of prohibition. The bureaucratic conception has this idea of, okay, there's something that is threatening. We actually see it as a real danger. There's a reification. And it also has to have a bit of a causal narrative attached to it. And that's why this process takes a long time to manifest. Many of the bureaucrats that I look at are kind of bad ethnographers who are immersed in local contexts. And they're saying like, oh, we see this is really a problem. Smuggling is all happening along this particular port. That must be the cause. Smuggling is the cause of drug problems in this particular western coast of Burma. Bits of information accumulate over time. They create an internal archive for the bureaucrats that they themselves reflect upon, looking backwards in order to construct narratives about what should happen going forward. That particular construction I see as analytically something that travels across different sites. But you're quite right to note that contexts differ. And my story is very much a context-dependent construction of these administrative problems. So it depends upon who was consuming opium, who was the majority consumer population, what was the nature of the opium economy, as well as what types of political and metropolitan ties the local colonial government had to London and Paris. And because bureaucrats on the ground are dealing with different contexts, for each of the cases that I look at, the problems themselves differ. So for British Burma, it's a sort of moral epidemic concerned with opium consumption as a proto-form of drug addiction among the quote-unquote native Burman population. Whereas in Malaya, the anxieties that guide 
anti-opium reforms are more about an unsustainable fiscal dependency on opium tax revenue, something that is seen as detrimental to the fiscal stability of the colony. And then in Indochina, the central problem conception that I trace is that there's a sort of dangerous reliance upon opium imports that the colonial state and its territory is vulnerable to the kind of vicissitudes of trade, reliance upon external imports of opium. So contexts differ, but commonly throughout, the moments when we tend to see anti-opium reforms actually occurring is when there is an internal conception of a problem that the state's actors themselves deem worth solving. There's also this dimension, which I really wanted to highlight, of a kind of odd, at times uncomfortable for me to observe, creativity that comes with dealing with problems that they themselves see happen, occurring in the process of opium taxation and regulation, and eventually the rollback of those policies. One thing that I laughed a bit at and was also a bit disturbed by was when I was looking through the excise reports for British Burma from around the 1870s into the 1920s. And this is a dull genre of reports because they just give summaries of, okay, this is what we're doing in this particular district. This is how much revenue we've collected. And then there's snippets of this type of annoyance. There is a little smuggling scandal here and there, and they become quite rote. But if you read them through, and I had the chance to do this because there were duplicate copies held at the Joseph Regenstein Library at the University of Chicago, which was where I actually first dabbled in the archives of the colonial administration, if you just kind of read them through, you realize that there's an evolution over time in terms of how they are depicting things. And the kind of dollar language comes later when they figured things out and they're just replicating themselves. But if you read early on, you see how they come up with and the kind of revisions that are being made to, for instance, reports in the appendices to count the number of opium consumers in the colony. And early on, they're still using religion-based categories to count the number of opium consumers. And this is because they've borrowed the template from Bengal. Burma was a province of British India at this time. And so the categories are Muslims, Mohammedans, or Hindus and others. And then there's the total population. And if you look at the numbers, and Nick, you know this much better than I do, Burma is a Buddhist majority country. And so the majority of their counted opium consumers end up in the and other category, not even like on its own. It's Hindu and others. And this is a problem, right? And there's discretionary power exercise at this very local level when one administrator says, okay, clearly we need to change this. We're not counting anyone properly. And so they shift the categories. It's relabeled in the next sequence of administrative reports, but without any fanfare. It's briefly noted in one of the texts explaining corrections and errata in the previous administrative report. And they add now the category of Burman, which then if you think about it, it's like, okay, we have two religious categories and ostensibly a kind of ethnic category, but it seems to make sense to them. They fix it. And then there's a flurry of inquisitions later on amongst the administrators when someone points out like, we actually don't know what a Burman is defined as. Can you provide clarification? And so there's a ton of correspondence questions being asked. Who do we want to define as a Burman? Is it a person proper to the heartland of Burma? Do we include the Shan, the highland minority populations, because they seem indigenous to the land? And over time, that classification, what was Mohammedan, Hindu, and others, later Burman, shifts into Burman and non-Burman. And then there's additions of the Chinese and the Indians. That type of work, which will prove profoundly important for how the reality of Burma's opium market and opium problems are conceived, emerged through the discretionary power and discretionary acts of these local bureaucrats who are solving problems in the process of doing their everyday work. That brings me to a related question. I'm sure I'm not the only person who reading through the first pages of the book was thinking of Lipsky's street-level bureaucrats and his account of how the state is built upwards and outwards from the work that they're doing. And 
in a footnote for anyone who does have the book on page 238, you suggest that you're relying very much on his work. Then you suggest that there's a contextual difference in as much as, quote, the discretionary power emerges not through encounters with ordinary citizens or society writ large, but in an insular fashion. Is your point that Lipsky's concern is precisely that the person offering public services or imposing public services on uh, clients is dealing with citizens, that through your inquiries, you get at a kind of a closed relationship in which these petty bureaucrats are really engaged in a kind of discretionary negotiation, if you will, with one another and with their superiors, in which the colonial subjects are objects of inquiry, and it's resulting in a different kind of knowledge production from the sort with which Lipsky is concerned. Anytime one of your questions includes a reference to a footnote and a page number, I take as a huge compliment on how carefully you've read it. (laughs) No, I think that's exactly right. And I'm glad that you're helping me think through the ways in which my account of these bureaucratic constructions of official problems and the kind of implications both align with and differ from Lipsky street-level bureaucrats and indeed Bernardo Zaka's work. I mean, in a nutshell, I would say one of the core differences is very much a looking backward in time rather than looking perhaps downward and interactions with everyday people in order to formulate the conceptions, the kind of moral dispositions, which I think Zaka talks about a great deal on the part of bureaucrats. It's a peculiarity, I think, of this domain of colonial policy, which is opium, enormously important from a revenue perspective and enormously complex given the way in which opium taxation was knitted into the very foundations of colonial state building for Southeast Asia. So it's a complicated matter for which metropolitan officials are often quite happy to defer the specifics, the kind of seemingly dull technicalities to the bureaucrats on the ground. That's a kind of enabling condition for their discretionary power. And it also creates this dynamic where these bureaucrats, of course, they interact with quote unquote local populations. The Chinese opium tax farmer is a regular person that they have to interact with. There are petitions that come from local communities that ask the state to step in to protect colonial subjects from the harms of opium. These are administrators who are attentive to it. They listen to it. But it's not entirely clear to me that that is actually what shapes their decisions to take action. Rather, what propels them is a kind of internal reflection and an inner persuasion based upon their own administrative history and precedence. So they look backwards rather than looking outwards and downwards and upwards. And I really wanted to get at that distinction because I think it has important implications for how we understand what does that mean in terms of the kind of logic of governance for these colonial states. In a way, because they're dealing with subject populations, not citizens, there's less institutional mechanisms for accountability. But the way in which these actors are tied to their own precedents creates a sort of internal legitimacy. They're bound by themselves to incidentally create policies to make justifications that don't necessarily emerge in response to moral pressures or demands for, quote unquote, better governance. But somehow they still end up doing things in ways that align with it because they are looking back and finding their own hands tied by what they've done in the past or promises they've made in the past to themselves within the bureaucracy. So I think it gets at how internal constraints upon bureaucratic actors can emerge endogenously rather than through a kind of exogenous or state-society interactive process. Diana, let's take a short break here. And when we return, let's talk some more about the archives, methods, and many other things. Sounds cool. Welcome back to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science with me, Nick Cheesman, in conversation with Diana Kim on her Empires of Vice. 
Dana, you spent a lot of time in archives. Where were they and how did you go about finding what you were looking for? I had a lot of fun in the archives and it kind of spanned across throughout my dissertation process as well as afterwards. So the way that the book emerged is that initially it was very much focused on the British Empire in Burma. And then I had the pleasure of receiving grants from the Center for Overseas American Research Centers, which let me go to Vietnam. And I added the French Empire afterwards. So it's a kind of two-stage process through which I was looking through these sites. And that took me between repositories in Southeast Asia, so Vietnam, Burma, a bit of time in Cambodia as well, and then moving back and forth with Europe especially in the government archives in Kew for the UK, and then in southern France, the archives for overseas territories is in Aix-en-Provence. So I was moving a lot between those sites. I was also relying on digitized archives that were held in some repositories, in the case of the Center for Research Libraries, which was close to the University of Chicago, my alma mater. And I was accessing collections that were in repositories in the United States as well. And I do want to stress my use of these archives were very much the official archives. So government and especially the bureaucratic administrative reports were the major ones that I was looking at in the English and French languages. Were there any other contenders? Did you ever think of doing a case study from Africa, for example? Oh, gosh, yes. Absolutely. Given the nature of the colonial institution specifically that I was looking at, which was at the heart of opium prohibition, this is an institution called the Opium Monopoly. That particular institution for both the British and the French span across into India and then in parts of French Oceania. So I did very seriously think about hopping across continents, being able to take a more global and transnational approach. But to be quite honest, there was a question of feasibility. And then there was also a commitment on my part to really wanting to tell the story regionally of Southeast Asia quite well. I mean, Nick, I'm preaching to the choir with you as my audience, but given the multiplicity of empires that divide Southeast Asia from the late 19th into the 20th. We have the British, the French, the Dutch, the Spanish until the late 19th century, and then the American empire enters the Philippines. And I thought I wanted to get the story of the region and its multiple imperial powers first, and then I suppose in another lifetime, or with more time, to be able to branch out and figure out how the British and French interrelate with the Dutch, how this entangles with the Americans, and then moving out from there was something that suited my particular systematic temperament better. So it's both a personal choice and a feasibility choice that guided my focus on these sites. Both good reasons. You described the book as providing a comparative method for explaining complex processes of historical change. What kind of comparative method is this? And what do you mean when you refer to it as a layered comparison? So the layered comparison is an approach to providing a rich explanation of how a process unfolds across multiple sites. And I really want to stress this how question and unfolding, because that was key to the research design as well as methodology that I was using. Southeast Asia's particular context and the history doesn't lend well to doing standard controlled comparisons across sites, which presumes that the sites are independent of each other. And I did actually really think about how I might be able to take that approach, especially during the early stages of my dissertation. I thought, well, can I compare the British in Burma and the British in Malaya, thinking about how differences within the same national empire occur? Can I look at sites comparing the Dutch in Java, where a quote-unquote native population was the majority opium consumers, compared to other places where predominantly Chinese opium consumers were the mass upon which opium taxes were levied. So I puzzled through that, and then I realized from my how question, trying to put the colonies into boxes was more stultifying 
and making me bracket what was arguably some of the most interesting things to understanding how prohibition happened, the interconnections between different colonies within the same empire, between empires, as well as their kind of common nestedness within the global political economy. And so I decided, okay, let's start from assuming that everything is interconnected. What is the best way to understand why these processes happen at different times? And so I decided to have them span chronologically, and it was partly a narrative choice while writing the book. So Burma covers 1870s to around the 1890s. Temporally layered on that from a narrative perspective is the British in Malaya, and I'm especially focusing on the Strait Settlements, that takes up the story from around the 1890s to the 1920s. And then layered onto that narratively are the French in Indochina. I was hoping to convey that this is a long process for each colony, but also across the region that spans at least a half century. And then there's an also layering in the sense of building upon existing explanations of what we might conventionally expect for reasons that anti-opium reforms are occurring. So those would be straight up material revenue driven concerns or metropolitan policies. So Burma and Malaya are layered in the sense that they were both of the same national empire. So if we see changes occurring in Britain regarding um, there is a dangerous drug act that emerges in the 1930s, maybe those are moments at which we should see similar changes occurring in the colonies if we think the metropole is doing a lot of work. And what I try to show is that, no, it doesn't really fit neatly into that timeline. And then the next two chapters, Malaya and French Indochina together, are layered against the backdrop of revenue-focused explanations. These were two of the richest, quote-unquote, opium colonies in the sense of extracting revenue from excise taxation on popular consumption. So if we might imagine revenue concerns, maybe moral pressures from the international community or moral crusaders doing a lot of work, both colonies would find similar kind of pressures and perhaps shifting their approaches depending on the context. But that also didn't quite seem to be the case. So it's layered in both this analytical sense as well as a narrative writing sense. The narrative does flow beautifully from one chapter to the next, and analytically, it's compelling. But in the break, when we were discussing where we would go next in the interview together, one of the things you remarked on was that you get some comments that the research design is unconventional. Is it because of this layered comparison, or are there other aspects of the work that are picked up on by, let's say, conventional scholars when pointing out your unconventionality? <laughs> Nick, I think you should more often use the little snippets of conversations that happen during the break. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that advice. <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely. I think because it's not a standard controlled comparison, or even it's slightly unconventional thinking about conventional comparative historical methods, that it takes a while for me to explain what it means to answer a how question, which is different from, in my perspective, answering a why question. The how question really is about getting at a process. How does a process unfold chronologically over time, which is my particular approach. It could be scalar. I mean, there's another way to tell this particular history, which would have been focusing on the very local within the colony and trying to think about how this spans out across empire or national level scales, moving into transnational movements. Trade was a central part of the ways in which we understand opium's place for empire, moving into the metropole and then to the international community. This is a time when the League of Nations and its Opium Advisory Committee comes into place after the First World War. And there's conversations that happen among the quote-unquote drug diplomats of the early 20th century. And that itself has legacies over time and how we understand global drug control. So that's another process that could be told across scales. And I think this method of layered comparison is well-suited to getting at process, perhaps less satisfying to get at pinning down a causal factor that explains why change is occurring. I quite like this approach because I'm 
keen on understanding how things changed over time. And I like the nitty gritty process. And I'm quite influenced by microhistorians, Natalie Davis, Carla Ginsburg, as well as the historian Emma Rothschild's work on the sort of inner life of empires has been profoundly influential for me. There's ample evidence in this book of your appreciation of the nitty gritty and how you work so effectively with the granular details of the archive is really evident throughout, especially in the three chapters on the case studies. But as a political scientist, what implications did your disciplinary training have in thinking about how you went about doing the archival research that you did? And as an interpretivist, were there particular reading methods that you adopted or other techniques that you had working in the archives in attending to the interpretive work that your low-level administrators themselves are doing? I mean, one approach that I took in terms of archival approach, which I think may align with historians, microhistorians, but also differs in a way is that much like many political scientists, I came into the archives with a question in mind, which was how do I understand the reforms relating to opium and how do I understand what made them change over time? And how does this tell us something about colonial state formation? That was both my orienting framework, and it also gave me a way to, I think, puzzle productively about how to use the archives, not in an instrumental sense, but in a way that generates frictions that were helpful for making a larger argument about the role of bureaucrats. So I had the hardest time trying to figure out when prohibition had actually happened for Southeast Asia. And that, of course, comes from the preconception of a political scientist who went in looking for years. I wanted a decisive turning point. The more I read through the archives, and again, reading of the excise administration reports, the dull, deathly dull reports over and over, I came to see that it was never a single point. It was in a way something that continued, and it was the accumulation of minor changes in policies that were spanning from the 1870s onwards into the 1930s. In the chapter on British Burma, I end up focusing on 1894 as a moment of a crucial anti-opium reform, which is when the first major ban on popular consumption for a colony occurs under European rule in Southeast Asia. That wasn't the date that I initially found. And there's not terribly much fanfare in the actual records to say that, okay, this is when we did it. But that's something that becomes visible once you understand how many shifts were coalescing into that moment. That the idea that Burman-specific targeting was central to how the British would approach prohibition and sumptuary restrictions. And that the rationales behind it had to do with the conception that there was an increase in social disorder specific forms of petty crime that seemed indicative of a more general moral decay. And if you look at this from afar and just think about it, it's that, well, colonial powers everywhere posit a unique vulnerability to their local subjects. They use these as excuses to intervene upon society everywhere. And that's quite true. But what was actually going on and what I came to see was that there actually had to be in this particular case for this particular issue, a formulation of these administrative problems in order to make this actionable. And it's partly because of the revenue concern. So this is a kind of tagging between what I think of with my comparative political scientist hat on, but also a person with deep fascination with archival methods and narrative historians and microhistories that guided the ways in which I was able to find effectively my DV, I guess, anti-opium reforms. What that gets at, I think, is the fiscal discourses are typically discounted in the many ways that theories of state formation talk about tax-related reforms and policy changes. The interpretive stance, for me, was very much centered on this colonial institution called the opium monopoly. They were much maligned because the language of prohibition that local administrators used was thought to be mere justifications for emboldening state control because they said, look, we're going to incrementally restrict the commercial life of the drug. If we do it too suddenly, it'll wreak more havoc. 
and we're going to limit harmful consumption, but not shut down the markets entirely. And we're still going to have some opium revenue trickling in. That was taken. And this has informed a lot of scholarship as hypocrisy, bureaucratic consumption being covered up. So one of the administrators that I look at for Malaya, Arthur Meek Putney, who ends up designing a major anti-opium reform in the guise of Opium Revenue Replacement Fund for the Strait Settlements in 1924, he's been called out in the press by creating a very suspicious arrangement that stinks almost like a durian, maybe even like a rat. So these kind of comparisons to the stench of animals and pungent fruits, analogies to gross misconduct is just a common way in which we understand the nature of opium revenue that the colonial states were still gathering, even when they were saying that they were doing prohibition. So that makes sense. But when you start to take the language of these administrators seriously, it becomes clear that it was probably some insidious disguising of intents, but it was never as coherent as that. There was never anything that was as well planned out. And I wanted to unpack what is the language doing. And for this, Jonathan Saha's work has been deeply influential. The historian Bafnani Rahman on Document Raj invites us to remember how much the significance of bureaucratic paperwork and discretionary authorship takes on a life of its own, which is work that the critical theorist and legal scholar Bernard Harcourt and political scientists like Kimberly Morgan attune us to to think about like why do we prefer certain analytical constructs and ways of talking about the language of the state and what do they actually capture and omit and mask about their empirical reference. And so I took the language seriously. And what I kept on seeing was that there's a lot of language of greed and avarice and yes, revenue extraction, but there were also expressions of frustration, senses of remorse, claims to be doing atonement, pride, confidence, boredom, skepticism. And if you put all of those together, it's a world of sentiments that suggests that there's a way to see deep ambivalence on the part of administrators, the ones who are key to running the institution that was doing both revenue extraction and also doing prohibition. And this was both exciting and kind of disturbing for me. And I consistently tried to contextualize them, sometimes in the kind of personal worlds of the administrators that I was looking at. I also tried to situate them at times in terms of metropolitan politics, ideological shifts in the kind of nature of liberal empire, which works by Karuna Mantena has elucidated beautifully in the context of India. That was the kind of tagging back and forth that I was doing with the ultimate ambition, and I'm not quite sure how well I've delivered on it, to take language and practices seriously when talking about a fiscal realm. I wonder whether you went from a position that you were characterizing as one of asking questions in the manner of a political scientist to one towards the end that not only was interpretive in a way that's familiar to listeners of this series, but also was leaning towards the recent literature on affect. It strikes me that a lot of what you've been saying about the confidence of the state, seeming confidence, concealing anxieties about all of the categories which are producing as many problems as they're attempting to solve, gets to a lot of that literature on anxious conditions on the state as inherently nervous. Is that where you found yourself ending up? I think that's very apt, the sort of comprehensibility of ostensibly bad actors was something that I found disturbing and also even maybe more disturbingly productive analytically, but also normatively. And I'm very much indebted to the works of Anne Stoller in terms of thinking through how to write these ambivalences that emerge from dwelling upon the history of in my case, not necessarily colonial subject populations, but very much the agents of empire. And I say the word bad actors with quotation marks around them because maybe that's what lies at the heart of my ambivalence. I think they were bad actors in the sense that they're unmistakable agents of a colonial enterprise, an industry that operated to the detriment of people across Southeast Asia profoundly extractive at one point, and then making a bit of a mess out of doing prohibition too. And I really do want to stress that when I say anti-opium reforms and prohibition, this was itself a deeply vexed, haphazard 
process that left lasting legacies for Southeast Asia in terms of the rise of its illicit drug economies, the kind of deep penality of the states that today are incredibly punitive towards minor drug offenses. So these are actors that have a role in both the operation of the colonial enterprise and what traces it's left today. On the other hand, what do we mean when we say actors are bad? I hope I've conveyed that I don't think that attributing a simple intentionality is either helpful nor correct. It gives too much coherence. Then is it neglect? Is it an inability to anticipate what would happen? Is it a kind of willful pulling the wool over your eyes? Is it a kind of crass disdain for perhaps a richer reality that was going on that the administrators were not looking at? Can we attribute responsibility? What does responsibility mean when we talk about historical actors? And so you kind of see the rabbit hole that I go down just in terms of thinking about if one is to say that there is a creative problem-solving work that these actors did, what do we take away from that? So I think this discomfort itself is a productive thing, not to take for granted that we can easily say that, oh, these were unintended consequences of colonialism, or that they were well-meaning actors who couldn't foresee what would happen. I find that unsatisfying. I like thinking through the analytical and the normative together and to step back and think about analytically what are the implications of thinking of empathy with bad actors and what that means is that for the study of vices, and as you pointed out, the kind of ambivalence and uncertainty and anxiety-riddenness of the colonial state and its agents is a kind of central theme to the literature over the past 10, 15 years. What we can take away from this might be, okay, the colonial state is anxious about a lot of things. The morality question kicks into prostitution, to drinking, gambling, drugs, and we haven't even gone into the varieties of drugs. I talk only about opium. There's brilliant work being done on cannabis, ganja, cocaine. If there's so many things that colonial states are anxious about, why do we see political action in the form of state policies and legal interventions occurring for some and not others? And that's where I think the kind of tools of comparative political scientists with the kind of interpretive sensibility can be profoundly helpful. You mentioned legacies a number of times in that response, and you have a chapter on the legacies in the last part of the book. The thing that immediately caught my eye is that it's accompanied by a mini photo essay. Where did that idea come from? That is by many counts my favorite chapter, and it was also the hardest one to write. A lot of those images are ones that I encountered just combing through the archives to borrow the language of the French historian Arlette Farge, not particularly looking for them, but them kind of popping out and just smacking me in the eye. So I collected them, not entirely sure what I could do with them. I thought maybe I would end up using them for presentations. But as I was writing the book, and I I wrote through it chronologically, when I got to this point, I realized, well, this is a really helpful foil, at least for me to think about what it means to look backwards to tell a story that we know the ending of, and we have pretty strong conceptions about how bad it was. So I assembled the photo essays as a counter to one of the images, the one from the 1950s, I think, of kind of decrepit, incredibly emaciated opium smokers in the straight settlements just lying in a dark room that were taken by, I think it was a life photographer visiting Singapore. And that, I think, is the standard way that we imagine the social life of an economic life of opium smoking. I wanted to kind of play with the idea that you can see a lot behind those images once you start to think historically. If we begin to see the institutional history, the shopkeeper in one of the images in front of the opium shop in today's Yangon, in the opium shop that sells retail opium in Singapore under Japanese occupation, it gives reason to pause and ask, okay, then why on earth do we just think about the decrepit opium smoker immediately? when we think about opium in Asia. 
it's a kind of impulse to push against a sort of crass Orientalism. I think it's also an impulse to think about what are the things that render this type of vulnerability so hyper-visible while masking the political forces, the structural conditions that generate that kind of vulnerability and hide them from sight. So that was the ambition behind the photo essay. I hope in future books and other works, I can do it in a more nuanced way. But that's the part of the book that I had a lot of fun with. So speaking of fun, you're there at the IAS. You must have persuaded them that you've something really interesting going on for your new project. What can we expect from you next? I am slightly stepping away from opium, but still keeping this fascination with how do we understand the role of the state in relationship to marginalized communities in the sense of those that we presume are deviant, illicit, at the edges of society. I'm hoping to write a global history and the transnational politics of untouchability. So the notion of a hyper-marginalized group based upon hereditary occupations and touching taboos is predominantly associated with Dalits in India. But I want to look comparatively. It will be another sort of unconventional comparative approach to think about what are analogs and parallels in terms of groups that also have these types of hereditary occupations, of genealogies, of hereditary occupations surrounding them in Korea, Japan, parts of Africa, and the Middle East as well. Yemen and Nigeria are places that I'm currently reading a lot about. And to broadly tell a larger story about how do we understand this global untouchability, if it can be described as a hidden world, and what are the ways in which the rise and fall of empires, the categorization of populations, and then their collapse during the mid-20th century and birth of nation-states helps us explain the different types of visibility and forms that they take today. So there's a category of untouchable groups in Korea that has quote-unquote disappeared and which I think very few people know about. There's a hyper-visibility to Dalits that contrasts with a group called the Burakumin in Japan. So I want to understand comparatively and transhistorically how we get to see these things the ways that we do. It seems very afar from the opium project in Southeast Asia, but in a way, it started from some of the records that I encountered in the archives regarding Japanese overseas prostitutes in Singapore, many who came from this marginalized community. And historian James Warren has written beautifully about this group called the Karayuki-san. I kept on bumping across archives relating to Dalits in Malaya. And then I bumped into this record about Koreans in Vietnam, of which I knew very little about, being kind of repatriated after World War II. And it got me digging into who they were, how they ended up where they were. And so this story about the making of hyper-marginalized groups in the collapse of empires is where I'm going to head with the next project. And isn't that the best way for a new project to emerge, by bumping into it repeatedly in the one that you're already working on and realizing that there's something you're going to have to come back to? Exactly. Diana Kim, I wish you all the best for that project. And thank you very much for talking to me about Empires of Vice. Thank you so much, Nick. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, if you found this episode stimulating, then why not check out the other episodes showcasing exemplary empirical inquiries in the new books in Interpretive Political and Social Science series. To date, we have Natasha Bell on gendered citizenship, Lisa Wedin on authoritarian apprehensions, James Scott on Against the Grain, Sarah Weeb on Everyday Exposure. You can find those interviews and the other episodes in the series to date, which discuss texts on methodology and philosophies of interpretive political and social science on our website or wherever you get your podcasts via the new Books in Political Science channel.